Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Every Sunday, Christians gather all around the world to celebrate the resurrection. So we have hope. The Bible does call this Lord's Day in a few passages. And so we're grateful for the hope we have. You might be going through a real difficult season in your life, a seemingly impossible season in your life. Or maybe you're having a really good season in your life. And that's okay. That's great too. But whatever season we're in as Christians, we have hope. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on that Sunday. And that is our hope when we're gathered uh, for that purpose. My name is PJ. I'm one of the five pastors here. I guess we're still technically five pastors here. Um, but it's a joy uh, to bring you the word this morning. And because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and then open it to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 20 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback Bible in the chair right in front of you. You can just go ahead and grab that out and turn to page 871. And you'll find Matthew chapter 16 on page 871 of the Pew Bible there in the chair in front of you. So turn there. We're going to look at Matthew 16 verses 20 through 28. If this is your first time... Using a Bible, when I say Matthew 16, that's the chapter number, that's the big number. And then when I say verses 20 to 28, those are the small numbers in your Bible, okay, in the Bible in front of you. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 20 through 28. Hear the word of God from Matthew 16, beginning in verse 20. Then Jesus gave the disciples orders. Actually, let me set this up before I read it. Um, Jesus just asked them, who do you say that I am? Uh, who do people say that I am? And then they say all these different prophets and special people. And then Jesus says to the apostles, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so with that confession and that revelation that comes from the Father, here's what Jesus says in response to that whole conversation. Verse 20. Then... He gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world Yet it loses his life. Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open 
this word to us that we would behold the wondrous mystery of Jesus Christ, incarnate, living, dying, rising, and calling and reigning, calling us to follow him. Father, we pray that this morning would be a commencement morning for many people here who are not Christian. Among our children here and our guests here who are not Christian, even unconverted members, which is possible, we pray that today would be the day of initial salvation. That people would give their lives to Jesus today and trust Him for the rest of their lives into eternity. Only you can do that, Father, but you are powerful to do that. So we pray that you do that today. And then, Lord, for those who are Christian, we pray that there will be a fresh deepening of a resolve to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. That they would see, that we would see, that Christ is infinitely more valuable than the most valuable things of this earth. And that we would willingly, gladly, enthusiastically, immediately, and quickly dispense with anything and everything for the sake of knowing and enjoying Jesus Christ and following Him. Lord, that is a supernatural work that only you can do. But Lord, we know you can do it very easily. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask for your help now. May your spirit powerfully change and shift our church family as a whole and even the individual members of this church to give a personal and powerful word to each one here, Lord. We pray that you would push this word deep in our hearts to bear great fruit for your glory and for our joy in you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Are Christians crazy for following Jesus so devoutly, so closely, and so extremely, extremely? Are Christians who really read and trust all the Bible and, uh, and try to spend time with Jesus, are they too dedicated, too confident, too out of touch with reality? Others in the world might think, sure, Christians should love Jesus. Of course, everyone has a right to their own faith. I'm a person of faith. Everyone should be a person of faith or their own personal conviction. Even being dedicated to a church family could be a good thing. But, but uh, Christians need to do this in moderation. They, they need to keep a good balance in their life. They need to live a nice, balanced life and not be too extreme for Jesus and for the Bible. The popular word today would be fundamentalist and extremist for their religion, especially when they're wrong-headed. Should we be, should Christians be Christians of moderation and good balance and not be too extreme? Jesus disagrees with that sentiment in a passage like this. In this section of Matthew, Jesus calls us to commence and continue as a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. So Jesus is calling us to commence and continue to follow him as the Messiah. When I say commence, I'm speaking, you know, a commencement might be something like a graduation. And when they have commencement, they call it a graduation ceremony, a commencement. It's like you're studying for a long time. You've been working at your craft and on your major, and then when you have graduation, you are now commencing to do the work. All the preparatory education has been done, and now you are beginning to do the work. That's what commencement is. And so for some of you who are not Christian, my prayer that I just prayed, that we just prayed, is that today would be your commencement. That today you would become a Christian and begin following Jesus as your Messiah, as the Messiah and Lord. And for some of us, most of us here, we're already Christian. This is not a commencement for us. For many of us, this is a continuation, right? We're continuing to follow Jesus. We want to get a fresh encounter, a fresh experience of Jesus from the word here as we hear him and think about him and hear from him and his spirit. And we want to be strengthened in our continuing in following Jesus as the Messiah. 
Okay, so commence and continue as a follower of Jesus. That's the main goal of this passage. To commence and continue. God is calling you to commence and continue as a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, how do we do that? There's two ways to do that here in the passage. In verses 20 through 23, you do it by changing your mindset. Setting your mind on the things of God or setting your mind on God's concerns, it says in the passage. So changing your mindset is the first way to commence and continue with Jesus. And the second way is by choosing death. Choosing death is the way, is the second way to commence and continue as a follower of Jesus. All right? So we'll think about these two one at a time. Change your mindset, choose death. Two ways to commence and continue as a follower of Jesus. So let's look at the first one. Uh, ch change your mindset or set your mind on the things of Jesus. This is in verses 20 through 23. Now in our world today, uh, many people might think about God, especially those who are not Christian. They might think of God as being, or at least Christianity being on the wrong side of History. You might have heard that before, that, that Christianity is on the wrong side of history. Jesus might be on the wrong side of history. God is maybe on the wrong side of history, or at least that version of God. And Jesus needs to make sense to our popular opinion of today so that he can be acceptable to us. And so when we look at God, we look at Christianity, we look at Jesus, we might uh, think, the world might think, you know, they need to get with the times, to get with popular opinion of the day because the popular opinion today is the right opinion. It is the truth. Now, the world might think that way, but sadly, many Christians think that way too. And we could be intimidated by that pressure. Jesus is not intimidated by that pressure. Jesus challenges all those who would tell him to conform. He even challenges Christians. He even challenges his disciples. He even challenges the rock himself, Peter, here in this passage. Uh, he's not intimidated by, by the, um, the pressure of others for Jesus to conform to his ways. So look at verse 20 here. So um, there's th three, we could say three ways of changing your mindset here, okay? And the first one here is to step back. We need to take a step back. And that's what Jesus is telling the disciples here. Take a step back. Look at verse 20. So he just reveals, the Father in heaven reveals to Peter, now to the, the 12 disciples, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Boom. Right there. Full revelation. Jesus has admitted it. Now you could, you could start tweeting that and posting that online on social media and get the word out now that Jesus claimed it. He is the Messiah. Jesus says, hold on. Don't tell anyone. This is like the greatest news, and then he tells you to not tell anyone. You know how frustrating it is to have something really, really exciting and something you're really, really excited about? Maybe your whole life you've been waiting for this one thing to finally wait for the Messiah, and then you meet him, and you're actually one of his disciples, which means you get to, um, you get to claim that you're one of his closer followers, right? You get a name drop that you know the Messiah, and then he says you can't tell anyone. That's frustrating. Jesus commands silence. Why? Why does he command silence? Doesn't Jesus want to save the world? Doesn't he want the disciples to spread the gospel of the kingdom, the good news? Doesn't he, doesn't he want people to know the truth? Doesn't he want to, to, to anticipate later on in Matthew? Doesn't he want them to make disciples of all ethnic people groups all over the world? Doesn't he want to do that? And the answer to those questions is yes. yes. But telling people now at this point that Jesus is the Messiah won't accomplish that. If they start telling people now that Jesus is the Messiah, 
it won't reach those goals that Jesus has. Why not? Because the world at that time and the Jews in Israel at that time misunderstood. Uh, they misunderstood who Jesus was. They misunderstood who the Messiah was. Jesus faced this problem when he fed the 5,000. In John chapter 6, verse 15, when he fed the 5,000, people wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. And Jesus evaded and avoided the crowd at that point. Now, Jesus is the king. He wants to be recognized as the king. He is the Messiah, the son of the living God, the Davidic king. But he didn't want it to be done in their way because they misunderstood what the king was supposed to do at that time. The second, another reason why Jesus is telling them to be quiet is not because, not simply because the world and Israel misunderstood who the Messiah was, but even Jesus' 12 disciples misunderstood who the Messiah was. Because the disciples currently misunderstand what the Messiah is at this point in the story, um, it's not time for them to um, share that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're not going to commence on disciple making just yet. They're still in a preparatory phase here of, wait, hold on, before, now you guys know I'm the Messiah, hold on, before you go out and tell people, you need to understand what it means that I'm the Messiah. And so we not only need to step back and pause, it's the first way to change our mindset, is not rush. The second thing we need to do is look at Jesus and look at his word. So look at verse 21. Jesus is now saying, okay, step back, slow down. In verse 21, he says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third and be raised on the third day. So why is Jesus telling them to be quiet? Because he needs to explain to them, and it's not now he's no longer in Caesarea Philippi. This is from then on. This is a new turning point in the ministry of Jesus as he's making his way toward the cross. Now he starts to explain to his 12 disciples and even to his, uh, his larger group of disciples, Mary Magdalene and others there, that he, is not, that he is going to die. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be arrested by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. He'll be killed, and on the third day, he'll be raised. They need to know that this Messiah, this king, this son of David, who's supposed to have the government rest on his shoulders, this king was going to die. Now, would he stay dead? No. What does Jesus tell them? That he'll be what on the third day? He'll be raised. Now, he told them the whole thing. He didn't just give them the bad news. He gave them the good news. But they didn't understand it, right? And it says here in verse, there, there's a thing, if you write in your Bible, you might want to underline this line in verse 21. He began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to suffer, for him to die, for him to be raised. It was necessary. Jesus had to die. It wasn't optional. Yes, I'm the Messiah. But before you tell people, hold on. You need to understand, I must suffer. I must be arrested. I must be mocked. I must be shamed. I must be killed and murdered. And I must be raised from the dead. Get that first, then go tell. But it's not time for you to tell because you don't get that. It was necessary for Jesus to die. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? One reason, there's a lot of reasons. One reason why it was necessary for Jesus to die is what Ross read from Isaiah 53. It was prophesied that the servant of the Lord would come to die for sinners. But you don't have to go 700 years back to Isaiah. You could see in the book of Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Matthew 20, verse 28. Why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die? We know from Matthew 120, Matthew 121, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So does that necessitate dying? 
and rising? Well, look at Matthew 20, verse 28. Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To save his people from their sins, to save the many, he came to serve and to give his life. It was necessary for Jesus to die for the sins of his people, to save his people from their sins and the judgment that that incurred. It was necessary for the Messiah, the King, God's King, to die for sinners. It was necessary for him to die so that they could live. It was necessary for him to be damned to death so that they could be saved to life. It was necessary, necessary for him to be overwhelmed in the darkness, hanging in the darkness for three hours so that we could live in the light. It was necessary for him to suffer so that we could be dis delivered from final suffering where every tear would be wiped away from our eyes. It was necessary for him to be condemned so that we can be justified and declared righteous. It was necessary for him to be cursed so that we can be blessed. It was necessary for him to be forsaken so that we would be welcomed. It was necessary for Christ Jesus, the Messiah, to be judged so that we can be forgiven. It was necessary for him to die. And they didn't get that yet. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, thank you for being here. We want to give you the greatest news in the world. Jesus is the Messiah. We can tell you that now. They couldn't tell it then. We can tell you now. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's King. He is the Savior of the world. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he came to save sinners from their sins. Now, you need to understand if you're not a Christian that you, like me, I am a Christian, but you, like me, we are all sinners, we are damned and condemned before God because of our sins, because God is holy and righteous and he made us to know and enjoy him with his people forever. But we have rejected that God. We have rebelled against him. And because of that, we deserve damnation. We deserve to be condemned and judged in hell under God's judgment forever and ever and ever. But God sent his son, the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel, to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross. It was necessary for him to die for his people's sins so that everyone, and, ri and rise from the dead, so that everyone who repents from their sins and trusts in Jesus would be saved. If you're not a Christian, God is calling you this morning to commence in following him, to commence to begin to become a Christian, to begin to be a Christian, and then to live the rest of your life as a follower of Jesus. So repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. I'll explain that more in our second point. But in order for us to change our mindset here, we need to take a step back and let Jesus give us a pause and challenge us. We need Jesus to explain what the nature of his Messiahship is, namely a Messiah who's going to die for sinners and rise from the dead. And then we need to, to, to change our mindset. We need to receive rebuke. Maybe this is the gist of this first point. We need to be able to receive rebuke. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Jesus has to die. And so what does Peter do? Peter takes him aside and begin, begins to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now, does Peter love Jesus? Yes or no? Yes, Peter loved Jesus. 
Peter trusted Jesus as the Messiah. Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah. Even here, he calls him Lord. And he says, have mercy, Lord. He's saying, God forbid, may God forbid, may God have mercy on you, Lord, that, that this doesn't happen to you. This will never happen to you. You need to just change your mindset. Get rid of this negative thinking, Jesus, about suffering and death. Positive thinking only. Good thoughts, Jesus. Good thoughts, Jesus. Calm down, Jesus. You're going to be okay. You don't need to die. This will never happen to you. Over my dead body, I will die before you die. I will die for you. This will never happen. Now, Peter's view of the Messiah was a conquering king, a revolutionary who would place the government on his shoulders, to use the words of Isaiah, and bring peace to Israel and force submission of all of Israel's enemies to submit to Israel. That they would recognize that Israel is God's chosen people. And if they want to be part of God's people, they have to become Israelites and rule and, and submit to the rule of the Israelite king, the Messiah. The ruler of not only Israel, but the whole world. And so Peter's like, that's where we're going. That's what the Bible says. And you dying is not part of, part of that plan of you ruling and reigning and us being with you in this rule and reign. You are not going to die. Now, Peter is passionate for Jesus. He has zeal for Jesus, but his passion and his zeal is not according to knowledge. Peter is misguided. Zeal and passion for Christ is insufficient in following Christ. Passion for Jesus is not enough. Zeal for Jesus is not enough. And we learn that here. Because what does Jesus call Peter? Look at verse 23. Jesus turns to the passionate Peter, the zealous for Jesus, Peter, the Messiah, the follower of the Messiah, the servant of the Messiah, Peter. He turns to Peter and he says what? Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Then he says, you're a hindrance to me, Peter. You're trying to help me? You're not helping me. You're hindering me. You become a hindrance to me. Why? Because you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're not thinking about the things of God. You are thinking about the things of man. You're thinking about human concerns. And because of that, you're hindering me. His zeal for Jesus has become satanic. His passion for Christ has become satanic. That's strange. Passionate for Jesus and Jesus calls you satanic? And the reason why it's satanic is because Peter is trying to syncretize, sync up his human concerns with Jesus's messianic claims. And when you get your human concerns, your earthly concerns, your own agenda, and you syncretize it with God's word and God's agenda and God's kingdom, and you try to syncretize the two, you actually end up following Satan. So in other words, syncretism is satanic in this sense trying to mix the things of man, your own agenda, your church's agenda, your family's agenda, your career agenda, your life plans. You try to sync that up and syncretize that and say, but I do love Jesus. I do love the Bible. I do want to see God's kingdom first and his righteousness. And you try to mix the two. You actually don't, you don't, you actually don't come up with a good blend. You actually destroy God's agenda in your life. You actually, in trying to side with Jesus by taking your life and trying to stick it into the Bible, Stick your agenda alongside the Bible and the Bible's agenda and Christ's agenda. You actually end up siding with Satan. Isn't that crazy? That you can be the rock and be the one who confesses Jesus as the Messiah and then be the very next, uh, next paragraph, you're siding with Satan. 
the things of, and, and so when it says human concerns, another way of translating human concerns are the things of man. The things of man versus the things of God. God's concerns versus human concerns. The things of man can be mixed with God's thoughts, but at the end of the day, it functionally marginalizes and pushes God to the side for your own agenda. And God will not have that. So Jesus is calling Peter, when he says, get behind me, Satan, he's saying, get behind me. And when he says, get out of here, go, go behind me is really a literal translation. Go behind me. The word go there is the same word that Peter, that Jesus uses when he's, when he's facing Peter in Matthew chapter four, go away, Satan after the three temptations, right? Go away, Satan. And a lot of people pick up on that and say, oh, it's the same command. It is the same command, but it's a little bit different too. For, for Satan, he just says, go away or go. For Peter, he says, go where? Go behind me. And that's the same word as later on where he says, if anyone would come after me, go after me. So he's saying, fall in line. Get out of my way, but don't leave. Get, get out of my way, then come right behind me and follow me. Don't stand in front of me. Don't tell me what my agenda is. Don't tell me what my agenda for you is, Peter. Don't tell me what, don't tell me what my agenda for me is, Peter. Get behind me. Get out of my way, fall in line, and follow me. In other words, Jesus is calling Peter to repent from his human concern mixture, his syncretism, his satanic syncretism. Repent from that, get your mind off of that, and trust in me. Repentance and faith. Turn from that and follow me. Don't act like you're my equal, Peter. Don't act like you have a good plan and I have a good plan and they could kind of just, we could kind of brainstorm together. No, just get behind and follow me. You're not equal to me, you're under me. So Peter needs to trust Jesus, that Jesus knows the way and that it's Peter's privilege to follow this Jesus, not to tell this Jesus what to do. And um, so this, this idea of avoiding, this idea of syncretizing um, to find the easy way to the kingdom. That's not just Peter's way. That was Satan's way, right? Do you remember Satan in, in Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9? He said to, to Jesus, bow down and worship me, Jesus, and I'll give you what? I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. That's what you came for, right? You came to rule. You can have all the kingdoms of this world. All you need to do is bow down and worship me. That's satanic right there. A shortcut to the kingdom by way of, really any way except God's way. Now, I don't know if Satan knew about the cross, in Matthew 4. Some people take it as Satan's trying to shortcut the cross. I don't think Satan was that smart. But I think here now Satan does know about the cross. Why? Because what did Jesus start telling the disciples? It's necessary for the, for the Messiah to what? To suffer and die and rise, right? So now Satan is now becoming more aware of the plan. And so now it's, it's his new curveball of a new, another way to get Jesus to go for the kingdom in a way that's not God's way. And that's satanic. So Peter, um, Peter is led astray by Satan here unwittingly um, into this way. And so not only does Peter do that, look at um, the next verse. I'm not sorry, the next verse, verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. He's a stumbling block to Jesus' plan. Why is he a hindrance? Now, Jesus said earlier in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it, overpower it. No one can stop Jesus. That's what we talked about last week, right? Uh, Satan can't stop Jesus. Death can't stop Jesus. Hell can't stop Jesus. Demons can't stop Jesus. Peter can't stop Jesus. The church can't stop Jesus. Christians can't stop Jesus. But, but it, well, Christians are not supposed to stop Jesus. But here is Peter jumping in front of Jesus' way. 
Oftentimes, Jesus is not opposed by devils, but by disciples. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26 talks about how the Lord's servant must be gentle and patient. It's talking about how a pastor and leader should be in the church. In 2 Timothy 2, 24, it says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness, even inside the church. Why? Because what are some disciples doing in the church? They're becoming a hindrance to God's agenda. So what does Paul tell Timothy? Be, be gentle, keep, te keep teaching them. Why? Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses, church members, disciples. Then these disciples, these professing Christians, may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. See that there? Christians in churches can even be taken captive by the devil to do the devil's will and lose their sensibility. And so if Christians and churches can do it, if Peter can do it, guess what, brothers and sisters? You can do that too. You can be deceived by Satan. You can be distracted by Satan. You can be off-roaded and, and, and put off your track by Satan. Jesus, I mean, Peter opposed Jesus unwittingly and unintentionally. But it was just, that, just as much as it was unintentional, it was also unmistakable. He chose the wrong side in this conversation. And this is what we need to be careful of as Christians. We need to be careful because we too can oppose Jesus with good intentions. We can be zealous for Christ and actually on Satan's side. We can be captured and captivated by the devil to do his will and not listen to sound teaching and God's thoughts, but try to mix God's thoughts with our thoughts. Now, so, so Jesus is rebuking Peter here. God is rebuking us this morning here as well. Colossians 3, 1 says, Therefore, if you've been raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. Do you hear that command? Set your mind on the things above. And I like the word of mindset. And not just thoughts and thinking, but mindset or setting your mind. Why? Because you could have a passing thought. That's different than having your mind set on something, Right? Having a mind set on something or setting your mind on something is not just you thinking about something, it's you committing to it, right? It's you guiding your life by it. It's you following it and grabbing onto that thought and saying, yes, this is, this is good. This is right for me. This is right for us. And when your mind is set on the things of man and not on the things above, things down here, not on the things above, things of man, not the things of God, things of temporary rather than the things of eternity, then you will be derailed. And so the command here is to set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Paul continues, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed in glory. So we need to set our mind on things above, things that are invisible, not the things that are visible. Things that are internal, our inner man being renewed day by day, not the outer person ultimately. And not the things that are temporary, but what is eternal. That's all 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Even the way you look at people, you should set your mind on the things of God, not the things of, of man. When you look at each other here this Sunday morning, I wonder what you see. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16. So then, from now on, we know no one from a human point of view. If indeed we have known Christ from a human point of view, but now we know him this way no longer. When the world looks at humans, they see humans, and they see all kinds of things. When you see a fellow Christian or non-Christian, even this Sunday morning, I wonder what you see. Is your mindset on the things of God as you look at each other? Is there a biblical grid there that's interpreting what you're seeing? 
Friends, we're all susceptible to this. Jesus is calling us to learn from this passage to be vigilant in, in keeping our minds set on the things above. Now realize that oftentimes your view of Jesus is too small. Your Jesus is just too small. Jesus' kingdom in your mind is too small. Jesus' church is too small. Jesus' leadership is too small. The Bible in your mind is too small a thing. And when it shrinks in your mind, it, it, it sends us off track. And so we can easily take the things of God, reframe it with a self-centered or man-centered way of thinking things, and call it following Jesus. And this is why many Christians unintentionally sin. This is why I unintentionally sin, and why you unintentionally sin. And just so you know, when you see a lot of Christians fighting in public or online or different churches disagreeing, a lot of it is because of unintentional sin. It is because of things like this. That, that someone, some groups... Um, even us, sometimes, we set our mind on things of, of man, we, we, we baptize it as the things of God, and then we get mad at other Christians when they might be right and we're wrong, or vice versa. And so if we're going to set our mind on things, the things of Jesus, we need to take a step back and trust Jesus' timing. We need to make sure that we're not running ahead of him just because we're passionate and sincere. We need to actually slow down and be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We need to meditate on Scripture and let it bring us to Jesus and his cross and his future hope. So, just some application here before we move on to the second point. Friends, let Jesus offend you. Read the Bible and be offended. Stop, stop like reading the Bible and then slowing, like going so quickly over the Bible that it doesn't offend you. The Bible is an offensive book. The Bible is the most offensive book to your self-centeredness. It, is the, it should be in some ways the hardest book to read. Because we're selfish. Let, let the Bible offend you. Don't be so quick in your Bible reading that you're not convicted over sin. There's a reason why we confess sins here every Sunday. Because we've sinned every week, right? Because we're sinners and we've offended God. And God needs to remind us that we're offensive to him. And that we're, we're out of our lane. We've stepped out of pocket. And he needs to rebuke us. Let the Bible challenge you. Let Jesus offend you. Let him convict you. Let him surprise you by his word and spirit. Children, children, read your Bible. Read your Bible and learn about Jesus every single Sunday. You know, in my devotions this week, I was reading Joshua. And um, Joshua was reading the whole book of Moses, which is a lot, not only to men, but also to women, not only to men and women, but even to children. He had all of Israel stand there for hours and read them the book of Moses. I preached one hour. <laughs> but they would stand there with their children and listen to him just read the Bible, the book of Moses. That's in Joshua chapter 9, I think, in my devotions this week. So children, learn as much as you can about Jesus. Every Sunday, every sermon, every children's class, whenever you read your Bible, so that you could set your mind on the things of Jesus. And Christians, if you're discouraged, I hope you find great encouragement in Peter's life. Peter was the rock and also was called Satan. And he's Jesus' faithful follower. I hope you're encouraged by that. Don't be too discouraged that you find, this sounds really weird to say this, don't be too discouraged that you're sometimes satanic. Is that right to say? I think it's right to say. Um, don't be too discouraged because Jesus chose Peter and he knew Peter was going to do that and Peter did it and he still used Peter, didn't he? He still loved Peter. He still used Peter mightily and made Peter's life count and he'll do that for you too. Don't be too discouraged when you sinfully get satanic. Repent and come back to Jesus again. 
It's okay that you mess up in the sense that it's, it's, it's expected and Jesus knows it. You're not surprising him. Just keep coming back to him again and again in repentance and faith. All right. So if you're going to commence and continue as a follower of Jesus, the first point here was to change your mindset. The second and last point is to choose death. That sounds weird. weird. And especially in light of Ross's sermon tonight where he's going to tell you to what? To choose life. Okay, Ross can tell you tonight, choose life from Deuteronomy. I'm telling you this morning, choose death. I'm not contradicting Ross tonight. You can find out when he comes back tonight. But choose to die. Choose death. That's what Jesus is telling us. Look at verse 24. So Jesus is rebuking Peter, and then he looks at all of his disciples, the 12 plus the other followers, and he says to all of them, if anyone wants to come after me, to follow after me, to get behind me, if anyone wants to follow behind me, get after me, he needs to do three things. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, the, the, our world would like to say things like, you know what? We need to just be true to ourselves. I need to do me, and you need to do you. Just be, be true to who you are. We should just be accepted for who we are with all our desires, because all our desires are the truest version of ourselves, and who we are as humans. If I have to deny some of the things that I honestly, sincerely, genuinely want, I'm becoming less human. And if I'm becoming less human, then, um, then, then that's not right. So I need, to be, I need to have the freedom to choose to be and do what I want. And everyone needs to have that freedom, to just do whatever they want. Well, Jesus contradicts us there. Jesus tells us that our desires can lead us astray. And you know what? It's even more complicated than that. Even you, Christian or non-Christian, even your desires are inconsistent with yourself, aren't they? Sometimes you want two different things at the same time. You're not always wanting one thing. You want to diet and exercise. You want to sleep and stay up, right? You want people to be nice to you and you want to be mean to them, right? You, you want to do two things at the same time and act like, like you're all perfectly consistent with your desires. You're not perfectly consistent with your desires. You have inner conflict. It's PJ against PJ. And it's you against you. And Jesus is telling you, deny one of those PJs. Kill one of those PJs. Tell that other side of you to get up on that cross and die. The selfish you, the self-centered you, the godless you, the Jesusless you, the mindset on human things you. Kill that man. Kill that woman. Kill yourself. Deny yourself. And follow me. Listen to that other side of you. The rational side of you. The right side of you. So when he says deny yourself here in verse 24. He's telling you to say no to yourself. To say no to your selfishness. It is unhealthy for you. To say yes to every desire you have in your life. Isn't that true? Amen. You don't have to be a Christian to agree with me there right? It's unhealthy for you. To say yes to every single desire you have. Your life would be terrible. If you said yes to every single desire you had, you'd have no more friends, right? No one could stand you anymore if you said yes to every single desire you ever had. You'd be alone. So, so deny yourself. Jesus is not telling you something that's radical in a sense that it's only Christian. Deny yourself. What's radical is he's telling you which side of you to deny, right? And he says, take up your cross. So die to yourself. People go on the cross to what? To die. And people don't choose to go to the cross. Jesus is telling you to choose to go to the cross. People go to the cross and they hang there for days and days and days, suffering and shame until they suffocate and die. 
Die slowly is what Jesus is telling you. Be willing to die for Jesus and then follow Jesus. Now, um, in the Greek, in the original language here, the first two commands, um, deny yourself and take up your cross, is seen as just more general actions. You can almost take them as an initial thought. Deny yourself categorically. Um, die on the cross categorically. But then when he says, follow me, he says, follow me continuously. As a char- follow me characteristically as the habit and pattern of your life. You can almost think like these two are kind of the one-time things, and then this is the regular life. Almost like decide to die. Decide to follow Jesus. De- or not decide, decide to deny yourself. Decide to say no to, to part of yourself, the wrong part of yourself, and then decide to die. Make that decision, be decisive, and be done with that decision. Don't make that decision anymore. Choose to kill your bad self, your evil self, your sinful self. And deny it and choose that. And then for the rest of your life, continually, regularly, habitually, characteristically, follow Jesus again and again and again and again for the rest of your life. Don't decide to become a Christian over and over and over again. Make that decision. Get baptized. Immerse yourself in Jesus. Symbolize it with water. Immerse yourself. Join a church. And then just go. Just follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Set your mind on God's things and make that decision be decisive. Be willing to die to everything. And if you're willing to die for Jesus, then you're willing to do everything less than die for Jesus in order to disciple the nations and follow Jesus. So die to selfishness and self-centeredness and embrace, embrace Christ-centeredness in all moments, interactions, relationships, goals, and ambitions. And for them, for Christians, if you're going to be a true Christian, you need to, die, um, you need to follow Jesus continually, daily, and freshly with renewed prayer and meditation on God's word and thinking about what God is telling you to do today. You know that your life is never the same. Every Sunday is different for you. You're, next week, you're going to be in a new situation. Tomorrow, you're going to be in a new situation. And it's a new situation to follow Jesus in. You might have a conversation with someone you've had a thousand conversations with, with, with that person. But that next conversation, you need to follow Jesus in that conversation. And every single conversation. So will you choose daily death for final life? Will you choose... Um, and, have you, and have you chosen to die so that you could follow Jesus? This is what it means to repent and believe the gospel. Listen to Luke 9, 57 to 62. Let me put some meat on this, okay? Listen to Luke 9, 57 to 62. And as they were traveling on the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, first allow me to go and bury my father. But he said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another person also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first allow me to say farewell to those in my house. But Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Don't look back. That's what the song says, right? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Here in this passage in Luke 9, Jesus is saying, put Jesus above shelter, above housing, above provisions, above parents, 
above children, above family, above work, above whoever and whatever is the dearest to you. Decide to follow Jesus definitively and don't look back. That's the call here. Choose death to the self-centered self and choose life for your true self that God created you to be. Does it jar you that this is how you become a Christian? By repenting from these things and choosing decisively to die and follow Jesus for the rest of your life? Does it jar you that we must choose this to be Christians? When one of our pastors and his wife and their children decide to go overseas to a 99.9% .9 Muslim area at great risk to their life and to their family, we see that as an exception. That's not an exception. That's Christianity. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus tells us that this decision is the beginning of Christianity. Not mature Christianity, but true Christianity. This is what we try to explain to you in the Membership Considered class. In the Membership Considered class, we try to tell people, hey, if you're going to join this church, you need to really decide to follow Jesus. Not as a mature Christian. You could be a baby Christian. That's fine. It's fine to be a baby Christian. But you need to be a real Christian, which means you have, you have definitively decided that you are for Jesus and your life orientation is directed towards him, not towards work or family or all these other things and distractions that, satanic, that Satan will try to get you to mix in with your Jesus agenda. Have you decided to do that? And you're willing to do that in the fellowship of a church and be held accountable? Great. You, you're, you're a good candidate for our church to consider to be a member of this church. But if you're saying, I want Jesus, but I don't want that. I don't want that accountability. I don't want that commitment. I don't want that priority. Well, then you, you might not be a Christian. Quite frankly. You might not be a Christian. And so... Have you decided to deny yourself and follow Jesus on the path of pain? Amy Carmichael wrote a poem and it says, she, she wrote this about Christians or those professing to be a Christian. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? It costs something to be a Christian. And I love the fact that I can look around this room and see many of you, what you have left behind and what it has cost you to be a Christian. Praise God. I see the choices you make. I see the difficulties you bear because you want Jesus. And that's our life until we die. It's not just the past, it's the present. Until you die, we're going to keep following Jesus, picking up scars, 
picking up wounds, entering difficult situations and conversations because we're following our crucified and risen Savior. Application to the church family. BBC family, 118 members. Be careful who you affirm as a Christian into our church. When we take in members, when we baptize people who profess faith in Jesus, when we continue to affirm them as a church family with the Lord's Supper, be careful, church family, who you affirm as a Christian. We're not saying every Christian has to be super mature. That's not the point. But every, Christ, every professing Christian needs to be a real Christian. They need to be decisively committed to Jesus. Not just in their own words, in their own way, in their own secret, private way, but in a way that's public and accountable to all. Because they're signing their, themselves on the dotted line and saying, I am a Christian and I need to be held accountable, accountable by everyone, including my church family. Now, why would someone choose to deny himself and die? I'm talking about choosing death. There's three reasons, and let's just finish the text here, verses 25 through 28. Why would someone choose to, to die? Three reasons. Verse 25, verse 26, and then verses 27 and 28. So those are three. So one verse, uh, the next one is verse 26, and then the last reason is the last two verses. Why should someone choose to die? Verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Okay, so, or save it. So if you, the first reason why you should choose to die to yourself is because you will find your life. Does it say save it in your CSB? Okay, just want to double check because mine is the updated one. Um, find it. So the first reason here is because you will find your life. Okay? If you try to save your life by doing what you think is going to make you happy, guess what? You're going to, at the end of the day, you're going to what? Lose your life. If you lose your life for Jesus, you'll find your life. You'll find your true meaning of life. You'll find what you were made for. You'll find your purpose and your destiny and your joy and your happiness in God because God made you for him and God made you to be in the places you are as someone who loves and knows Jesus. So in other words, you will find your life in knowing Jesus. For me, that means I will find my life in knowing Jesus as a neighbor and as a pastor and as a husband and as a father. So whatever, God, Jesus is not telling you to not be who you are in the places he's placed you. He's saying that you will lose your life if you try to make that your life and not Jesus your life. But when you make Jesus your center and you deny yourself, you'll find out your true purpose in all the things that God's called you to do. You'll have a center and a compass for your life. So why would you lose your life? Um, because you'll find it. And why, why will you find it? There's, another, there's a reason why you actually find life when you lose your life. Verse 26. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? And what's the answer to that? What, what's the benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your life? What's the benefit? No benefit, right? You can be Steve Jobs and own Apple. And if, it's, if you have a terminal illness and there's no medical need, I mean, at that point, you know, it's good, good things that you've done, but like all that money in the world can't replace the fact that you're going to die. And when you die, you're done. And if you get the whole world and then die and lose your life and lose your soul, what good is that at the end of the day? Verse 26, continuing, or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? What can you give in exchange for life? What can you do, what can you give to God to purchase longer life and eternal life? What can you give God? What can you give God that he doesn't have? Nothing. There's nothing you can give God. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, to pay for your salvation, right? Jesus has to provide that. That's what he did on the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for many. 
I mean, you, you would do anything in exchange for your life because you can't really enjoy anything else if you're not alive. And so there's no benefit to gaining the whole world and losing your life. Remember the parable in Luke 12, 16 and 21? This guy has an increase of dividends in his investment and his, bar, his, um, his crops grow like crazy. And what does he say? What's his solution? Should it be to seek God's kingdom and bless all these other people and live for God's glory? No, what does he say? I'm going to build bigger what? Barns. So he builds bigger barns and he puts all the crops and he looks, ha, finally, look at all my possessions. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. What good is your barns then? You're dead. Took all that time to build your barns. You didn't enjoy it for one day because your life was required of you. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It profits him nothing. So why should you give? Why should you deny yourself and choose death to self and life in Christ? Because you will save your life in the end. And then the third reason, verses 27 and 8, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each for according to what he has done. So Jesus is going to come, the Son of Man. You can look at Daniel 7, verse 13 and following. I, w- I wanted to spend time here in the sermon on it, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. But read Daniel 7, 13 and 14 to the end of the chapter. Jesus is the Son of Man who receives the kingdom, and he represents all of the, the saints of God who receive the kingdom. And Jesus is going to come again. This is why you actually save your life by giving your life to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is going to come again. What is he going to do according to verse 27? The Son of Man is going to come with the glory of his Father and with his angels. And what is he going to do? He'll reward each according to what he has done. He'll give you a reward. So why should you choose death? Because when Jesus comes in his glory, he will give you a final eternal reward. In other words, it's worth it. Now, if you read Mark and Luke's version of this conversation, Mark and Luke bring out the other side, the negative side. Matthew is emphasizing the the positive side. You get a reward. The negative side is what Mark and Luke say, which is, which is what, when the Son of Man comes, if you're ashamed of his words in this generation, when he comes with his Father and the angels, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you in the final judgment, and you'll be damned to hell forever. What's a reward? Christ is going to give you all kinds of rewards, but what's the greatest reward? Life in him, Christ himself. Jesus gives you himself and eternal life to reign with him on a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever and ever. So why should you choose life? Because you, or choose death to self? Because you get eternal life and eternal reward. You get Jesus himself forever. If you want to get a taste of that joy, go back two sermons ago on our YouTube page and listen to Nathan Knight's uh, riff on the glories of heaven and how sweet it is to be there. That's the reward we get. Jesus will judge those who reject him. And so it profits you nothing if you gain the whole world and lose your soul in hell forever. Jesus, and then look at verse 28. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that mean? What does that mean? That they will see the Son of Man, that people will not taste death. That means people, some people aren't going to die. Now who's Jesus talking to here? His what? Disciples. Name some of his disciples. Just name a few. Matthew, John, Peter, right? Them, Mary Magdalene. There's, the, the disciples are there. And Jesus says, I'm telling you guys, some of you aren't going to die until you guys, some of you are going to actually see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Some people think of it as the second coming. It can't be the second coming. Why? Because all those people are what? Dead, Dead, right? So it's not the second coming. What does it mean that they're going to see the kingdom of God? I think it means 
that um, in Christ's death and resurrection, in Christ's resurrection, really, his death and resurrection, they're going to see the resurrected king and all of the new creation kingdom is, is bound up in him. I think that's the, so, so there, there's a mixture of answers. Some people say the death and resurrection. Others say it's Pentecost when the spirit comes down. Others say it's not only Pentecost when the spirit comes down in Acts 2, but the gospel spreading to all nations from, the, from Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And, that's, and, and, and they were there for that. Others might even think it's the very next section in this book. The transfiguration, which we're going to talk about next Sunday. When Jesus is white, his clothes are dazzling white and his face is uncovered and shining like the sun. And three of them get to see Jesus in unrestricted glory. Maybe that's the kingdom. But the point here is that Jesus is the king. He is going to reign. And people will not die until they see that. They wouldn't die until they see that. But you know what? We also get to see Christ's glory, don't we, before we die? In a sense. Do you guys remember 2 Corinthians 4? It says, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they would not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So why can't they see it? Because Satan has what? Blinded them. But what about Christians? Verse 6 is us Christians. For us Christians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shined in our hearts for the enlightenment of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why did you become a Christian? Because Jesus, because God said, in your heart, let there be light. And he's shown in your heart the glory of Jesus so that you're able to see Christ in his glory and say, I'll drop everything. I'll put everything secondary to Jesus. That's what happened when you became a Christian. You got to see a sense of the kingly glory of Jesus so much so that he was worth it all to you. If you're not a Christian here, again, I want to encourage you, repent from your sin and trust in Jesus. Choose to die to yourself and follow Jesus because that's where you'll find life. That's where you'll save your life. And that's where you'll avoid judgment and receive the reward from Jesus in the world to come. You will see his glory more and more in this world and in the world to come. So we sing songs like, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Then what? Then to be a king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Children, call on the Lord Jesus to save you. Call on the Lord Jesus to save you. Tell Jesus, Jesus, please save me. You hear that, kids? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So kids, call on Jesus to save you today. You can become a Christian today. Isn't that wonderful? That some of our kids, and I just, I've been praying even this week that, I feel like, man, Lord, are you going to save some of our kids today? Today you can become a Christian. Call on Jesus to save you today. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, if you're discouraged, you say, oh, I'm not such a, I feel weak. It's hard for me to let go of these things. It's hard for me to let go of these worldly things. Let me just encourage you. If you feel like a, a weak Christian who's so inconsistent, Jesus isn't asking you to be a super Christian. He's asking you and calling you to stop trusting yourself. To stop trusting your wisdom for what's good for your life. He's telling you to just let go of your view of what you think is best for you. It is hard to be a mature Christian. It's not hard to let go unless we don't trust him. He's calling you to rest in him, which feels like dying. But in dying, you're grasping your truest life. 
So to close, just to review, commence and continue as a follower of Jesus the Messiah. How? By changing your mindset and choosing death. Mark Dever tells the story of a brother named Max Stiles, who some of you read his books and some of you know him, a few of you know him. Max Stiles tells the story of being in rural Kenya. Now, Max Stiles was the pastor of Erbil International Baptist Church, where, we're, where we have supported for this year Andre Ramos, one of our missionaries, who is also working with Mac. Anyways, Mac was preaching in Kenya, preaching the gospel to a crowd, and a young man, really an older boy, came up to Mac and wanted to talk to him. And he said, I want what you have. I want what you're talking about. Mac explained to him the gospel and especially emphasized the cost of following Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. Repenting from your sins means that it's going to cost you your life. But if you really want Jesus, it's going to cost you, but he's worth it. So as Mac explained to him, God is holy, man is a sinner, Christ died for his sins and rose from the dead, trust in him and repent. Um, and, and here's the cost. Um, the boy seemed very familiar with the gospel, and Mac noticed it. And Mac asked if he wanted to become a Christian. Do you want to become a Christian? The boy quietly said, yeah. Mac said, it seems like you've heard all of this before. And it seems like you know the gospel. But what, what's held you back in the past? The boy named Robert looked down at the clay and made circles in the dust with his foot and said, my father has told me that if I become a Christian, he will beat me. So tonight, I will bleed. And he chose to follow Jesus. Robert's story is not unique. We've lost many things in our life for following Jesus. And we'll continue to follow this rejected yet resurrected master. So if you're not a Christian, begin now commence in following Jesus. And if you are a Christian, continue following him. Are we crazy for following Jesus? Are we religious extremists? Are we out of touch with reality? If Jesus is the Messiah, if he died for our sins and rose from the dead, if he is God and man, we're not crazy, we're wise. We are the ones who see clearly. We're not out of touch with reality. We see that bleeding and suffering for Jesus is an easy choice. It's no contest. Of course he's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We thank you that you were not deterred by Peter or by Satan or by your followers or by the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. You weren't even deterred by your own will when you asked for the cup to be passed from you. You knew it was necessary. You did it joyfully for the joy that was set before you. You died for our sins and you rose from the dead. We praise you. We love you. You are our treasure. We pray that we would continue to follow you with joy and devotion. Forgive us for compromising and syncretizing our own agendas with yours. 
We pray lastly, Lord, one more time for our non-Christian friends, that even today would be the day of salvation and that they would repent and commence in following Jesus, knowing that he is easily and obviously worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.